is the WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. Yes, and good day to you, Jessica Hayes in the chair. Fantastic to be back with you for the next few weeks, sitting in for Belinda Varischetti. Now, 24,747,000. That is the magic number that set up the state's grain industry to have a season to be remembered. Soon you'll hear from the Grains Industry Association of WA about why this year is edging closer to taking out best season ever honours. And... How do you like your tequila? Perhaps in a margarita or maybe a bit more straight edge in a shot glass with some lemon and salt? Or soon you could be enjoying a tequila-like spirit made right here in WA using a key ingredient which will be grown in the state's Gascoigne. And if you haven't had a night in your youth that put you off the spirit, it'll be a story that'll probably get your lips smacking ahead of Christmas and New Year, I suspect. And today, before the news at one, I'll be catching up with Terry Birkin from MLA to get the latest details from today's Mearshay cattle sale. And of course, if you tuned in from the header, maybe the boat or the orchard, I'd love to hear from you today. You can be part of the conversation by sending me a text on 0448 922 604. It is... Six past 12 on ABC Radio. Now, Premier Mark McGowan last week announced a major reshuffle of his cabinet. And that came amid the resignation of retiring stalwart MP Alana McTiernan, who's been the state's Minister for Agriculture and Food, Regional Development and Hydrogen. Now, one of two MPs emerged with portfolios in that reshuffle. One was Southwest local and first-time MP Jackie Jarvis, She's taking over the reins from Alana McTiernan with Agriculture and Food. She's also taking on the forestry and small business portfolios. And she was sworn in last week. Jackie Jarvis, good afternoon to you and congratulations on your appointment. Thanks, Jess. Now, first things first, I was chatting to some farmers over the weekend who said that your predecessor, Minister McTiernan, was very focused on blue sky ideas but maybe not focused enough on the nuts and bolts how are you planning on meaningfully re-engaging with some of those farmers who might have felt a little bit disaffected in recent years? Look, I'm intending to get out and meet as many people as I can. Uh, on Sunday, I was actually at Pingley. I went out to um, have lunch and a tour of the farm with John Hassel and his wife from WA Farmers Federation and, and Trevor Whittington and his wife. So we had just a very informal meet and greet. I spent some time on the header with John's daughter um, and, yeah, had a really lovely Sunday afternoon out out in the wheat belt. So it's that sort of um, on the ground getting to meet people again. You actually worked for Ms McTinnon as a minister. You were a senior policy advisor for a period of time. How do you think she'll be remembered and how would you rate her performance? Oh, look, I mean, I, yes, I absolutely worked for Minister McTiernan when she was um, in her first nine months in office. I was, I'd been in DPIRD and I was a DPIRD placement in her office, which I loved. She's done an amazing job. And you're right, she is a, a woman of you know, vision and passion. And she, I think she really elevated public consciousness around agriculture and what it means to Western Australia. So I think she did a great job. Probably we have quite different approaches. I'm probably a bit more pragmatic. And um, yeah, as I said, Alana did an amazing job. Okay. You've already expressed from the outset your support for the live sheep trade. You said, I do support live exports. It is an important part of the mix. Now, that puts you at odds with a lot of people in the WA Labor Party room. It also puts you at odds with some, well, a lot of your counterparts in Canberra. And I'm interested to hear what feedback you've had from the Premier and from other members in the Labor caucus after you actually made those initial comments. 
Well, feedback from the Premier. I mean, the Premier has been consistent and clear that the current measures, including another, you know, the northern summer export ban, are sufficient. And so, like me, the Premier is supportive. So we, you know, have excellent animal welfare systems in place. And yes, look, in Canberra, my understanding is that the Prime Minister has announced there'll be no change in this term of government. So. My job moving forward is to advocate for for WA farmers and for the industry. So you're planning on taking a more proactive advocacy role rather than sort of being a bit more in defence mode about protecting that trade? Look, I've made it really clear that it is important trade to Western Australian farmers, so absolutely. Okay. Now, you are a new minister and you are a first-time MP. Mm -hmm. Realistically, what can you do amid these talks of phasing out the trade? What can be done? What can be done with regard to my discussions with Canberra? Yeah. Well, look, I mean, I think it's clear that Western Australia is the you know prime export market for live trade. Western Australia will be impacted the most. I'm sure the federal government, you know, in light of the election results in May, will be looking closely at Western Australia. And so, look, I will advocate for Western Australia. It doesn't really matter how long I've been a minister or how long I've been a member of parliament. I'm the Minister for Agriculture and Food in Western Australia. I have the same standing as the other Ministers for Agriculture around Australia and my job is to advocate for our industries. Minister, you've also taken on the forestry portfolio. This is a hugely transitional time with the phasing out of native timber logging. Many within industry felt like they had a hard time under former Minister Dave Kelly. There was a view among some that he was disproportionately focused on outcomes of workers but not necessarily so much on the outcomes for mill owners and others with skin in the game. FIFWA boss Adele Farina, who is also a former Labor MP, sees that she has a really good working relationship with you. At this stage, what are your plans for guiding industry through this very pivotal time in history? So look, on my understanding, as I said, I haven't been briefed yet. It's, uh, it's Monday. It's my first day in the office. I'll get briefed by the Forest Products Commission tomorrow. My understanding is that a lot of the business owners impacted have accepted the grants and the transitional payments. As I said, I'm waiting for, for information on that. We've done the right thing. You know, we, I know that the forestry industry, you know, has been hit really hard by this. Um, but I also know that we've got a drying climate. I know that rainfall has diminished significantly in the southwest. You know, I certainly saw back in, you know, August 2020, there were timber mills sort of um, bemoaning the lack of supply and the lack of larger trees. So, you know, we've, we've taken the, the hard the hard course. It's really difficult. I, as the member for the southwest, stood in front of workers in green bushes that, you know, when they were retrenched only a few months ago. It is, it's, it's hard and it's hard for timber mill owners and I've met with timber mill owners and our local member for Warren Blackwood, Jane Kelsby, has done an amazing job actually being at the coal face of this. So I... I'm confident that we'll get through this. As I said, it is incredibly difficult. I'm also the Minister of Small Business, and so I, I get that it's incredibly difficult for business, and the, I think the transition plan has been incredibly generous, and I'm really looking forward to finalising all those details. You're tuned in to the WA Country Hour. I'm Jessica Hayes, and my guest this afternoon is the state's new Agriculture, Forestry and Small Business Minister, Jackie Jarvis. It's her first day on the job today, and she joins me this afternoon. Minister, you're also a winemaker from the southwest, and winemakers have really been put through the ringer in the last few years. There was COVID, there was slowing of key markets, and there was also China's uh, trade ban as well. How much of a focus will viticulture be for you in terms of research and development, and of course, marketing? marketing too in this new role? 
Well, yes, I probably need to correct the record. I'm, I'm not actually a winemaker. My husband is a winemaker. A winemaker is quite a, a technical position. I wouldn't. I, I have joked that perhaps I misspelt Margaret River wine drinker. <laughs> but um, look, my husband and I obviously run a you know a, a commercial vineyard. I'm obviously going to be really careful about conflicts of interest. I haven't been involved necessarily in the day-to-day running of our wine business for some time. I've obviously been busy, busy you know doing other things professionally. So look, I'm I'm interested in all aspects of horticulture. I think that horticulture sector is really important for not only not only lovely products but wine, but also fresh fruit and vegetables in, in our supermarkets. And, you know, West Australian consumers want to make sure that they can have as much access to West Australian produce as possible. So uh, the wine industry will not be getting, you know, any super special focus, I guess, but they're just part of the, uh, they're part of the important mix. Uh, but I am, of course, also Minister for Agriculture and Food. So, yeah, so I'm also looking forward to... Um, to working with those those producers that are also doing value adding, whether it's wine or whether it's food value adding, I think that's another part that's really important to the West Australian economy. Now, Minister, in 2014, you were named RIRDC Rural Woman of the Year, and that was for your work documenting the experience of resettled refugees working in agriculture. How do you think that that experience will inform your approach to helping solve this current labour squeeze? Because it is an issue that is still causing a lot of headaches across almost every primary industry. Oh, and I'm acutely aware of the labour supply issues, so not any was I doing that work in 2014? But you know, immediately before my election, I was working in the Department of Primary Industries, sort of dealing with this issue as COVID hit. I'm really pleased to see that the backpackers are certainly coming back. That was certainly the feedback I got from John Hassel from WA Farmers yesterday. I'm seeing it in my own community in Margaret River. The backpackers are coming back for those highly seasonal jobs. I think the, the um, expansion of the Pacific Island Worker Scheme is going to be fantastic. I have been heavily involved in that. I was actually the state manager for an organisation that, that was working on the pilot of that in, in 2012 and 13. So that Pacific Island Scheme is going to be important and I think we're on the same page with WA Farmers on that as well. So it is it is challenging. It's challenging for all businesses, whether they're hospitality businesses or food business or agribusinesses. But I, I just think we need to just make sure we're looking after our workforce. It's a tight labour market. It's going to be a tight labour market for a while. And, you know, on the home front, I, you know, my husband had to prune all 14,000 vines himself this year, whereas he would normally get contractors in. So I know that people are doing it tough. Uh, when I was at you know, John's property on Sunday, you know, he had his very accomplished daughter, driving the header. She's got four-month-old twins at home. So, you know, everyone's doing their bit. And I just think we just need to try and weather this, this little storm. And as I said, backpackers are coming back. And I think, I think we'll have a, a different perspective on how, how we deal with labour supply issues into the future. Well, it's good to hear that John trusts his daughter to drive the harvester. Can't say the same about my dad. Now, <laughs> what... was, I, think, I, I don't think I just trust her. I think, I'm pretty sure she, uh, that's, her, <laughs> that's her main gig. <laughs> now, what do you see um, as some of the key challenges more broadly that need to be addressed, Minister? And in that vein, what do you see as, as some of the opportunities for the state's agriculture industry moving forward? Well, look, I, as I said, I'm meeting with, with the agencies tomorrow, so I'll get their take on what, the, what they think the, the key issues are at the moment. For, you know, the next uh, 
the next few months, obviously, I just a bit of a steady as you go, get my head around everything. I'm, you know, obviously biosecurity. We want to make sure that we're protected for any, you know, outbreaks. I'm, I'm sort of informed that lumpy skin disease, you know, is it could be an issue because it's it's airborne by mosquitoes. Um, obviously, foot and mouth, and there are a number of smaller biosecurity issues bubbling away. Deeper would actually play a really important role over the bushfire season as well. So we we obviously play an animal welfare role. So you know we have a, a very hot summer coming. I know that from experience when I worked at Deeper in Bunbury, and you know I know that they. They basically have an emergency response centre set up there at the Deep Herd office ready to go for bushfire season. So we need to get through this summer and actually you know, let, let our grain growers finish their harvest, let our winemakers finish vintage and then sit down and actually talk to the industry. Finally, you've just described yourself as pragmatic. What are your priorities in this role and what do you want to be known for um, as WA's newest and current agriculture minister? I think just known for being a sort of a, a steady hand. I just want to make sure that the agency's ticking along. You know, I think Alana McKenna did a great job in actually, you know, managing that machinery of government change, bringing the agency together, making sure we've got the right capability. I'm incredibly fortunate that, you know, we've, I'm going to sort of, I guess, take on that project of that new agriculture research hub um, at Murdoch. So that's incredibly exciting. You know, DPIRD's always been about doing that research, doing that R&D, and I just think it's a really exciting time. So I'm, I'm the beneficiary of sort of coming in at a great time, I think. Uh, Minister, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the program this afternoon, particularly given it's your first day on the job, and we wish you the best of luck. Well, I, I, I'm going to say Sunday was my first day on the job because I was out there on the header and I've, um, I've, got, the, I've got the hay fever to prove it. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Jess. Okay. Newly minted WA Agriculture Minister Jackie Jarvis. So as you heard there, the minister committing to advocate for the continuation of the live sheep trade. She's also keen to try and tackle this ongoing labour shortage challenge and describing herself as pragmatic compared to her predecessor, Alana McTiernan, what do you make of the new minister's comments? Are you happy with this direction she's planning on taking? Uh, you can have your say on the text, like Rob, who has said, I hope and pray that Jackie Jarvis doesn't continue to force regenerative ag or carbon farming down our throats. That text from Rob. And Hayden says, I hope the new minister will travel throughout the wheat belt and visit all the country towns. You too can get in touch this afternoon. The number is 0448 Nine double two six zero four. I would love to hear from you. And if you're sharing your thoughts this afternoon, please just remember to pop your name on that text and let me know where you're from. 19 past 12. Now, after a record year for cattle prices, the market is ending on a relatively low mark with the Eastern Young Cattle Indicator sitting at around 901 cents a kilo. The Wiki, or the Western Young Cattle Indicator, is currently sitting at about 803 cents a kilo, its lowest level for the year. Auctions Plus Chief Economist Tim McRae doesn't think prices will go back up to record high levels anytime soon. Really interesting market dynamics at the moment in that from how we see it is we have sellers who are wanting to sell to particularly cash flow and income reasons, but you also have a very large pool of buyers who in a falling market are quite happy just to wait and see where the market goes, but still pretty keen to be able to buy some some young cattle for uh, what for most parts looks like a lot of summer feed out there. Is that sort of falling and the steadying of the market, I suppose, due to as well the herd rebuild being over now? Yeah, look, exactly. 
you know, the rebuild is over and we're now into an expansion phase. You know, the herd would now be bigger than average over the last 30 years. And, you know, when you look at it over the last two to three years, the growth there, there's more cattle on the ground. Producers across the board have a less desire to purchase more stock because they have you know, more of their own in their paddocks. And, you know, that that 10 to 20 percent decline in, in that demand really has a, a larger impact on the price falls just because they've, they've built up their numbers. They're, they're happy with what they're carrying and you know, it takes a lot of the edge off the, the real high prices we've seen. So looking into 2023, what do you think the cattle market's going to do over the next 12 months? Look, our forecasts are for the cattle market to fall 10 to 15% over the next 12 months. Now, if the last few years anything to go by, it'll be a, there'll be a, a few up and downs through that path, but I think the long-term trend is for it to edge lower. Now, if we're looking at an EYCI below 800 cents by 12 months' time, historically, that's still a, a good to reasonable price, and it really does show just how high prices got, particularly in the last 12 months. They were unsustainable driven by the, the sort of feedback loop of good seasons and, and high prices. And the real edge is going out of that at the moment as the cattle herd gets, gets bigger. What about our, our processing sector? Does that need to ramp up to ensure that the market can keep steady? Yeah, look, I think there's a real big question mark and I think one of the real interesting things to watch over the next period and it'll have a huge impact on the profitability of producers is just how the processing sector can handle what will be a lot of cattle coming at them at some stage over the next 12 months. You know, if they're able to get the labour uh, and they're able to get the, well, energy prices, there's a lot of factors that impact, have been impacting that sector over the last few years. They're going to have a lot of cattle coming at them and there's always that bottleneck there that could have a big determinant on just where prices go, particularly for finished cattle later in the year as more supplies come online. And what kind of opportunities are you expecting to come up over the next sort of 12 months when it comes to the export market? I know we've been talking a lot about what the drought in the US means for goat prices and and cattle prices link into that, do they not? Yeah, look, I think there's the, the huge sleeper in the market, if you like, is what's going on in the US. There's a huge imported beef market and is a very good customer of Australia's for decades. But that's all great, but, you know, for the poor US cattle producer who's been suffering through drought, that drought still needs to break. I mean, it's a situation a lot of Australian cattle producers are familiar with. It's got to rain, grass has got to grow, then they can start to rebuild their herd. To when that happens, you know, is I think that'll happen in another 12 months and then we'll start to see that demand for Australian beef pick up, but it still has to happen. And I think that's one of the real positive demand factors that's there, but when the actual impact of that kicks in is a bit of a guess for, for all the analysts out there. And when we're talking about a drop in the Australian cattle market of around that 10 to 15% over the next 12 months, is it going to impact any type of cattle more than the others? Are feedlotters going to be worse off than, than grass-fed or the other way around? No, I think I think particularly the cow-calf producer who's had a pretty good run over the last three years of really you know, light cattle, wiener cattle have been really red hot. You know, I think they see their prices come back, have already started to see their prices come back, but I think that decline is sustained. I think, you know, when we look at the feedlot sector and, you know, finished cattle, you know, again, we're back to that point of what do the processors do? What is their capacity to process animals? If we start to see a backlog of finished cattle, that could see a, you know, a, a price impact that is significant, but that backlog can be worked through if the, again, if the processors can, you know, really get up to speed. We still look at those factors and look at export markets that, you know, we're pretty positive that beef will find markets, but it's, you know, can it get through that bottleneck? Is that fall, I suppose, 
based on the prediction that the season across Eastern Australia will stay good? What what if we do sort of go back into a drier phase? Yeah, I think if we, you know, across the board, if we go to a drier phase, I think a lot of them would just call that a normal season now. Um, and you might actually see some smiles on the faces of some producers who are not getting as much rainfall as they have. But then again, you look through large swathes, particularly that real you know, key cattle producing country in Queensland where a, a good wet season might see numbers tighten up across the board. But, you know, in general for the for the cattle market, the eastern seaboard cattle market, I think we're we're going to start to see some big numbers coming in through the supply chains. And, you know, whether that's tighter in certain areas because they've maybe not had the rain of the last few years and there's a bit of a rebuild in one region that'll be offset by slowing rebuild and, and higher turnoff in other regions particularly as we see it through sort of central and southern new south wales which has had the run of three big years you know a return to dry conditions could actually be a welcome welcome outcome and um, allow a lot of producers to sort of get back into their traditional seasonal rhythms tim mccray Chief Economist with Auctions Plus, who was speaking to Alice Marshall, forecasting a drop in the ecchi of around 10 to 15% over the next 12 months, and a lot hinging on what happens in the US as it continues to struggle through some pretty devastating drought conditions. 25 past 12. Now, Citrus Australia CEO Nathan Hancock is talking about uh, changes to the way that Australia does trade with, in- with India. Now, the Australian and Indian governments have recently ratified a trade agreement that's set to be implemented before the end of the year. And Nathan Hancock says it's good news for the industry, but he's hopeful that the tariff reductions can go even further in the future. It's been an interesting uh, few months where we had the initial announcement about proposed reduction in in tariffs. And now we're seeing that both governments have have moved quite quickly to move through their parliamentary processes to finalise the that agreement, which is really good news for citrus growers and and the trade with India coming into the new year. What kind of tariff reductions are you seeing? So there's no restriction on the type of citrus that we send. And typically we do send oranges and have just started to send a few more mandarins um, to India. This change in the tariff is a reduction in the tariff. It's it's halved the tariff down to around 15%. There'll be a couple of other duties, in-state duties and those sorts of things, but it'll be down to 15%, uh, which is you know, significant uh, compared to other countries that are importing citrus. And, and it's a significant advantage for our industry, uh, which, as we know, is a, is a high-cost producer. We have very high quality, but we also have high costs behind that. So reducing the tariffs will go some way to making us more price-competitive in the Indian market. We're also encouraging our government to continue to put pressure on that tariff and see it come down to to zero or close to zero, where, uh, like we've achieved with other free trade agreements around the world, we think that removing the tariff down to zero is really our end goal. And there is a limit on the uh, upper number of, of tonnes of fruit that can be sent to India, and that's around 13,700 tonnes, which is you know more than we've ever shipped there before. And I think in time, we'd be looking to negotiate that if things become more successful. We are counter-seasonal to India. That's the beauty of trade from the southern hemisphere into the northern hemisphere. We're often counter-seasonal and don't pose a threat to their local industries. Is there much marketing and promotion work happening in India at the moment in the lead-up to this tariff reduction and that winter citrus crop coming online? Yeah, so we have a project funded by the, the former federal government, which is helping our team do engagement with the Indian market and linking our 
exporters and marketers from Australia with uh, businesses in India that are looking to uh, increase or start importing uh, Australian citrus. And we're also planning some um, activities, both um, taking growers over to, to see that and, and marketers over to see the Indian market, as well as bringing buyers out to Australia to see where citrus is produced, meet some growers, uh, see the supply chain. We're finding that um, some of the people in the market aren't familiar with mandarins, so we'll be looking at doing some taste testing and showing off some of the varieties that are available and, and the differences between them. And that will be happening through 2023 three season and 24 season for now, and, and we'll we'll plan out further than that um, as the time comes. But yes, absolutely, um, trying to assist business-to-business development for, foremost, and then I think that uh, in-market promotion will come after that. Was this the market where there was going to be a citrus ambassador put in place as well? There was some discussion about a, an ambassador, but I think there was more a brand ambassador through the project that I was referring to. That's uh, under review at the moment. We're not sure that the timing is right for that. We think the business-to-business development is the first step that we can't rush and getting an understanding from the the buyers, particularly around mandarins, will be the key. And then later on, we'll look at whether there's an ambassador role or something similar in future marketing. Citrus Australia CEO Nathan Hancock speaking with Kelly Hollingworth and that free trade agreement between India and Australia is set to take effect on December the 29th. And you might have heard in the news today, Australia's Foreign Minister Penny Wong is off to China this week. It's the first visit by an Australian minister since 2019, if you can believe it. Senator Wong has a meeting booked with her Chinese counterpart, Wang Yi, and her trip coincides with the 50th anniversary of the Whitlam government establishing diplomatic ties with Beijing. Now, Australia has been asking China to drop its trade sanctions, so it will be very interesting to see if Penny Wong's visit helps with that. And speaking of pollies, uh, earlier in the program you heard from newly minted Agriculture Minister Jackie Jarvis. Uh, she was talking about live exports, her support for the live sheep trade is an important part of the mix in West Australian agriculture. And a text has come in from Peter who says advocating for live exports is great, but the key thing I'd like is for WA Labor to remove all references to live export from their policy platform. He says while it's there, a threat remains. Remember, Reforming the upper house was repeatedly described as not a priority during the last state election campaign. And Peter says within weeks of winning office, a bill was passed to reduce regional representation. Banning the live export is currently not a Labor priority until they see the chance to destroy it. That text in from Peter. You two can have your say this afternoon. Get in touch. 0448 922 604. It's 29 minutes to one on ABC Radio. Time to get an update, though, from the newsroom. Tony Carr joins me in the studio. Good afternoon to you, Tony. What's making headlines this afternoon? Good afternoon to you, Jess. WA's Police Minister Paul Papalia says he hopes the person responsible for burning down a public sculpture south of Perth will be brought to justice. The Giants of Mandra opened last month and featured six giant sculptures around the coastal city. One of them at the Kundanup Foreshore Reserve was extensively damaged on 
Friday night after it was set alight. A Perth man has been charged with six counts of insider trading. Cameron Wall from Cottesloe was arrested by federal police after charges were laid against him by the Australian Securities and Investments Commission. It's alleged Mr War traded in shares of Genesis Minerals Limited on the stock exchange during September 2021 while he had inside information about the company. He appeared in court in Bunbury last week and is due to return to court in January. And a stretch of southwestern highway is expected to be closed for several hours following a major crash in North Dandalup. Police say a truck rolled near the Dell Park Road just before nine o'clock this morning. The Department of Fire and Emergency Services sent five trucks to the incident to assist in cleaning up a small diesel spill. Emergency services remain at that scene. Jess, I'll be back with some more news at one o'clock. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that update from the newsroom, Tony Carr. The WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. And it's time to take a look uh, at what's happening in the weather. In a moment, I'll be joined by Richard Hudson with all the latest rainfall and bushfire information. But first, to the Bureau now, where Joey Rawson uh, is today's duty forecaster. Good afternoon to you, Joey. Good afternoon. Jess, how are you? Good, mate. Now let's kick things off in the north today because it looks like the wet is well and truly here. What's happening? Yeah, so um, we've got uh, a couple of storms uh, just developing through the Kimberley and North Interior as we speak, and also some storms through the Gascoigne and stretching all the way to the coast. So there's some decent storms just inland from Cowberry that are moving through. So that area through the northern half of the Gascoigne, so you know, Mekathara and north and, and then stretching down to you know, potentially Geraldton, it's going to get uh, potential storms during this afternoon. And some of those storms might uh, pack a little bit of a punch with some pretty strong gusts out of those, uh, Jess. So uh, we've got those and we've also got uh, yeah, the thunderstorms over the Kimberley, um, which could uh, produce you know, around that 30 to 40 millimetre range. And, and that's uh, a pretty common theme for um, the rest of the week. Um, we're just going to have those storms over the Kimberley and they've got the potential to uh, bring a bit of rain. But as we get further on uh, into the week, we do have a tropical system well, there's a fair bit of uncertainty, but it is coming down from uh, the north of uh, WA and north of NT, and that's going to potentially bring a fair bit of moisture to the Kimberley. So come Friday and Saturday, uh, that system could be moving over the Kimberley and could be producing some quite heavy falls, which is uh, not so good timing, just in time for Christmas, Yes, <laughs> I think everyone's pretty used to it in the north. Um, I, so is the system that you're referring to there, I, I see that the Cocos Keeling Islands may be experiencing some gale force winds tomorrow um, as a, a tropical cyclone Darien moves slowly to the west of the islands. And I know that the Cocos Islands are about, what, three and a half, or 3,700 kilometres west of Darwin. But yeah, is that likely to impact WA's weather? Is that what you're getting at there? Yeah, so it's actually two systems. So the, the weather I was talking about that's going to impact the Kimberley is a, another tropical system. But as you said, we do have a tropical cyclone that is uh, west of Cocos Islands, uh, a long way away. Uh, we'll just um, call it straight out now. It's not going to impact WA, uh, but it could potentially produce some gales at uh, Cocos as it moves slightly towards Cocos and then it's going to move west um, away as we get to later Tuesday into Wednesday. So uh, it's the first tropical cyclone of the season. So 
Um, yeah, a big start already. Yeah, absolutely. I can vouch firsthand for how hot and sweaty and wet and muggy it is in the north, having driven down over the weekend. Uh, now, how are things looking in the east and interior? Yeah, so uh, the interior is going to have uh, basically storms through the northern half um, for uh, the next at least three days, and then it's going to start clearing out um, as we get to Wednesday and Thursday. And as far as like the southeast districts, not expecting much at all through the next uh, basically four or five days, uh, apart from a couple of light showers in the Eucla today. All right, and uh, what's the situation looking like across the southwest land division? Yeah, so the Southwest Land Division is experiencing a pretty static pattern. So the pattern's not changing much at all. So we've got this high pressure ridge to the south and a low pressure trough down the west coast. Um, so we don't have a lot through most of the Southwest Land Division apart from the storms, you know, through the northern parts of the central west um, today and tomorrow. Um, however, there is a potential for some storms. This afternoon over the southwest district, we did get the odd one yesterday and, and today the setup's a little bit better. So, um, yeah, through inland parts of uh, the Margaret River region and so forth, there could be a storm this afternoon. And then as we uh, you know, track forward in time, things just generally improve with that stuff in the northern parts of the southwest land division. And then by the time we get to Thursday, we're not expecting anything and then anything all the way through the weekend so uh, for all people in the southwest land division no precipitation for christmas day oh that's what you want to hear hey any warnings in place this afternoon joey yeah so we've got that uh, cyclone warning which is out past cocos island and we've also got um, some coastal wind warnings for the bunbury and lewin coast for tomorrow and that's oh and we've got a, a fire weather warning for parts of the central west as well it's all happening. Joey, thanks so much for that update. Thank you, Jess. Bomb duty forecaster, Joey Rawson. ABC Radio, fire ban information. Yeah, I do have some fire ban information, but just prior to that, uh, I do have a Bushfire Watching Act, which has just been called. So this is uh, news just come through in the last minute or so. So this is in the... Uh, Shire of Lake Grace. So a bushfire watching act is now in place for people near Walker Road to the north, Coolin Lake Grace Road to the east, Lake Grace North, Salt Lake to the west and the Lake Grace Township to the south in parts of Lake Grace in the Shire of Lake Grace. So there is a possible threat to lives and homes as a fire is now approaching in the area. Conditions are changing and the fire started near the intersection of Coolin Lake Grace Road and Walker Road in Lake Grace. So if you're not prepared or you plan to leave, leave now if the way is clear. If you are well prepared and plan to actively defend your home, make your final preparations now. And if you plan to stay and actively defend, don't rely on mains water pressure, may be affected. You need to have access to an independent water supply and start patrolling your property to put out spot fires and just make sure you keep doors and windows closed. And if you're not at home, please don't try to return as the conditions in the area are now pretty dangerous. And if you're told to leave in an emergency, uh, don't stay at home even if you have COVID-like uh, symptoms. And uh, this particular bushfire is moving in a southwesterly direction at the moment. Obviously, it's not contained or controlled. That's why a Bushfire Watching Act has been officially called by DFES. 
and some roads may be closed. Uh, Motorists are asked, obviously, to avoid the area, reduce speed, put your lights on, drive carefully, etc. And if you need more information on that particular fire, just visit Emergency WA. So just search Emergency WA. You can also call 13DFES, which is 13337. 13337. And you can also follow DFES, D F E S, on Twitter, Facebook, and of course, keep listening to ABC Local Radio. We'll give you all the latest. And that fire was only reported at 12 o'clock today, so it didn't take long for a Watch and Act to actually get called on that. Uh, it took half an hour. Firefighters are on the scene actively fighting that particular fire. Uh, a fair few fires around the, the place today as well. There's a, there's a few other fires. A bushfire advice is in place for part of Mount Hardman in the Shire of Derby, West Kimberley. Also ad, an advice in place for Cervantes still. That's for Durian Bay and Nambung in the Shire of Dandarigan. And an advice for parts of Henderson and Wattle up in the city of Quinana. And then another one, a bushfire advice for the northeastern part of Trent in the Shire of Denmark. And so because of the risk of fire, uh, there's a total fire ban in place for today for a number of local government districts in the Midwest. So we're talking about Carnamar, Chapman Valley, Karoo, Dandarigan, Greater Geraldton, Irwin, Minganew, Morrowa, Northampton, Perenjury and Three Springs. You know what you can and can't do during a total fire ban. No cooking, camping, hot works, grinding, welding, off-road vehicle use, etc., If you need more information on what you can and can't do, again, just go to the DFIS website. Just do a search for total fire bans. Uh, Also, there's a few harvest bans in place today. So due to the risk of fire, the shires of Carnamar and the city of Greater Geraldton have a harvest ban in place today. And that includes the use of any equipment that could potentially start a fire. If you want more information on that and when it's going to be lifted, just get in touch direct with your shire. And the next information on harvest bands will be at five past two on the ABC Local Radio. That's five past two this afternoon. Only a little bit of rain to get through, Jess, for the mostly in the north, of course. As you mentioned, the wet season's well and truly here. Oh, it is. <laughs> so for the Kimberley, some decent falls. Bedford Downs Airstrip, 30. Diggers Rest, 80. Drysdale River Station, Flora Valley and Creek, uh, Halls Creek Airport, sorry, 10 mils. El Questro, 92. Kachana, 6. Columbaroo, 11. Kingston Rest, 80. Cunanara had between 83 and 94 across a few rain gauge locations. Lake Argyle Resort, 13. Mullabilla Airstrip, 15. Mount Amherst, 5. Theta, 92. Truscott, 57. Wyndham Airport, 54. And then in the Pilbara, Marble Bar, 7 mils. Yarry got 8. In the interior, Carnegie, 8. In the goldfields, Norseman topped it with 5. And in the entire Southwest Land Division forecast districts, hardly anything. The top was Dragon Rocks with 3 mils. That's at the Deep Herd Station at Dragon Rocks in the Great Southern Region. And that's it. Right. Now, thank you for that update, Richard. Before you go, are you a tequila fan? I haven't drunk a heap of tequila. Sounds like you've had one today. (laughs) 
We, I did used to occasionally have one when I was in my uni days. We had a Christmas Eve Eve party on the 23rd, and the tradition was you'd have a big block of ice about a metre long. You cut a luge path in it. Your mouth goes at the bottom pre-COVID days, and the, the, tequi- days. the tequila or the other shots get poured down the, down that, the top. That sounds like a lot of preparation and commitment to the cause. I'd have to say it's one, we of, the few spir- one of the few spirits that I can actually stomach after some very fun nights in my youth. Um, and... The reason I ask is because there's plans to make a spirit using agave, which is a key ingredient in tequila in the state's Gascoigne region. And I'll have all the details for you in the next half an hour. It's coming up to 16 minutes to one on ABC Radio. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. Now, the Grains Industry Association of WA has released its latest crop report. And it paints 2022 as a year to remember across all WA grain growing regions, despite a few challenges in parts. Michael Lamond authored the report. Michael, uh, let's cut to the chase. Is WA on track for a record harvest this season? Well, I think we could pretty well say it is, Jess. I mean, it's, we've been a bit hesitant for a while, you know, for the last couple of months, you know, we've sort of, it's always been set up as a, you know, as a good year because we had a lot of crop in the, you know, a little bit, actually less crops sown this year than last year by about 300,000 hectares. And, but we had that really good start, subsoil moisture, warm winter, and then we just had this absolutely brilliant, you know, slow finish to the season. So it's been on the cards, you know, for a while. And as we got closer and closer to harvest, and as the first few paddocks came in, it was obvious that it was going to be very good. And, and, it, and that's been played out right across the state where most people are you know, getting yields, like whole paddock yields averages uh, greater than last year. So it can't really be any more than a, an increase in tonnes than last year now. I mean, the south coast and the southern wet regions, there is some lost grain and that was probably the only question mark really. But I think at this stage, yes, that we're definitely on for another record. Right. Looks like growers in the Geraldton port zone are having a particularly good time this year. Oh, yeah. I mean, Geraldton last year produced about 4 million tonnes of total grain and, you know, they're on track again for it this year, which is which is really, it's, it's quite incredible, really, when you think they had that very dry winter where the crops nearly died and any early sign wheat was just, just ran up and, you know, but all the later crops are just phenomenal and the, you know, the lack of heat shock in the north has been quite notable again. And so, yeah, they're, they're on track for another, another 4 million tonnes in the, in the zone. Right. What are we looking at in the Quinana zone at this stage? Well, the Quinana, uh, we're looking at just shy of probably 12 million tonnes. And that's the Quinana, you know, the low, low rainfall regions and the high rainfall regions. I mean, there was about 10 and a half last year. You know, the, what, what's occurred this year is that we don't have that, that big area of frost that we had last year. I mean, even in those frosty areas last year, the, the yields weren't too bad in the end. Although this year the crops probably weren't, didn't have the top end potential, but haven't had the frost and all the heat shock. So a lot of those areas north of Meriden and also the eastern areas, just they're going to be well up on averages. In some cases, you know, very, very good. And because of the large areas that are in the ground out there, the, um, the wheat tonnes of, you know, really, you know, we're looking at possibly 30 million tonnes of wheat. They couldn't go higher than that for the, um, that's total wheat. And in the Konana zones, you know, over 7 million tonnes of wheat. Huge stuff. Now, growers in the Albany zone enjoying some pretty extraordinary canola oil percentages. Bit of a change from that soggy 2021 season, hey? Yeah, yeah, it has been. Although, you know, I've seen 
photos of harvesters driving through water harvesting canola. But it's, yeah, haven't had the large areas of waterlogging. There, there is, of course, wet areas. And as you go further down to the south coast and, and then into the Espens areas, it, it has been very wet. And, you know, there is, I suppose, the, the yields of the canola have been all over the place in, in part due to those uh, those adverse rainfall events and the, you know, a bit of, you know, canola lodging and shattering and things like that going on. But, yeah, the oil percentages have been phenomenal due to the, you know, the cool conditions in Grainfield and the yields in some cases has just been, you know, very good as well. It looks like the Lakes region in particular is having what is being described as a dream run. Oh, yeah. I mean, last year was, you know, best ever. You know, but you know, apparently, and um, in in living memory, anyway, you know, just just no frost and just a, you know, yields you know fifty percent or greater than average, and this year, you know, just again the same thing. So it's it's nearly you know it's it's nearly hard to believe, but it, again they are, you know, potentially could actually be better than last year, a little better. So yeah, I mean, it's they are really have had an exceptional run over the last two years. And I'm looking at the tons. It's looking like just massive crop coming out of that Albany region as well. Yeah, well, five million tons is is a lot of grain, and I mean, even though in that Albany region there was a little bit of substitution of barley to canola, as there was the rest of the state, the the yields of you know the wheat yields has been a slight increase in wheat area down there, and the you know but all the crops are yielding exceptionally well. So, I mean, the uh, the five million tons, of course, is not what's delivered to CBH necessarily, and we because we, we report on total tons produced, which includes private acquisition, you know, private sale to feedlots, you know, private sale, particularly in oats and lupins, and also what's kept on farm for seed for next year. So five million tons is is definitely definitely on the cards for for Albany again. Now it looks like though a bit of frustration through that Esperance zone, a bit of a slow start and mixed results, just both in terms of yield and quality. Can you talk us through what's happening in that part of the world? Yeah, well, Esperance, um, they probably will end up with tons close to last year, although you know, growers down there have had, in some instances, have, have had as much rain since the start of harvest as they've had all year, which is you know, pretty incredible when you think about it. And the, you know, so quality has suffered, of course. It has been lodging. There's been a bit lost due to hail, particularly the colour earlier. But the whole zone, you know, even right up to the gums and, 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 and like Cascades is, is apparently having one of the best years they've had for a very long time. So, yeah, I mean, it's the, the, the rain has been, of course, very frustrating and the late rains in spring have been the, the sort of delayed harvest. But, of course, those late rains are the reason we're getting so many tonnes. It's just fuel those extra tonnes. So um, a, lot of, a lot of the grain down there is, is a little bit high moisture, so it's gone into bags, but the tonnes, I think, will still be there. You know, we're, we're, we're saying around about you know, 3.4. Um, I think it could go a little bit higher than that. Okay, so you touched on this earlier, but massive wheat yields. So what are we putting this down to? You, you mentioned a, a bit of a softer finish. Yeah, well, I mean, the soft finish, I suppose what's happened last year and, and particularly this year is the, the lack of heat shock and the, I mean, there has been more area go in last year and this year than there has previously. So last year, 9.2 million hectares, about sort of 8.9 this year, which is, is up on previous years, you know, around 8.6. So we have had more area, and the but the, the yields have really been fueled by that lack of heat shock and, and, of course, frost. So it just shows, I think, what these modern farming systems that we're, we're adopting can, can we we can do with it well, when we haven't got the heat shock. And I think, you know, we got a lot of mineralisation at the end, at the start of the year, which really kicked the crops along. We got a bit of a kick at the end as well, which is often masked because of heat shock. So I suppose that's a notable thing that, 
that all growers would would realise. And but you know the the systems that we've employed over the last sort of 10 years are really starting to pay off now. So massive yields, um, but obviously that comes at the expense of protein. What impact are you anticipating that might have across the board? Oh, well, protein is down, of course. I mean, it, you just get the dilution with yield, but the, it's probably not down as much as we thought it would be. I mean, there's still, you know, the low rate is going hard. And I suppose what is really notable and obvious, of course, is that anything off well-managed fallow or legumes, pasture, you know, it's just like they're up to 2% higher in protein and ton extra yield with less bag than applied. So again, it just shows the value of those legumes. And um, we don't have a lot of legumes in the systems. Uh, in the system, there is a bit of good pasture as you go further south. But I suppose the the dilemma next year is going to be. I mean, the lupins have been just unbelievable this year. They've very high yields, and and even though low harvest index, there's still a lot of growth that'll be available for mineralised in next year. But there's just not just no money in them. So, I mean, there is probably those high yields, but that's a bit, you know, that's quite exceptional. So it's just a question of what to do. You know, do you, um, everyone knows the benefits of legumes, but it's with higher input costs with fertiliser, you know, it's, it's going to be a bit of a dilemma on what to do. I mean, there's a lot of, lot of lupins in store, huge amount of lupins produced this year, huge benefit, but, you know, what to do in 23. Just finally, Michael, this harvest seems to be dragging on. Um, a lot of growers probably hope they'd be sitting at the, coast with a beer in their hand by now, particularly in the north. I mean, how does this stack up compared to previous years? Well, yeah, we're running a couple of weeks later. And um, yes, the folk in the north are used to, you know, being on the beach by Christmas. Although I don't think anyone who's not is going to be too worried, really. And in, in the rest of the state, what's happened, I suppose, that is notable as well is that there hasn't been too many harvest bans. Once people have got off the canola and onto the cereals they're really cracking along there's a lot of huge amount of header capacity nowadays and a lot of grains are coming through and you can see that with the delivery records that cbh has been been posting so you know yes whilst it's has been frustrating to start with you know and it is going to be later it's still a good result well michael thank you so much for climbing out from under the header um to have a chat with me this afternoon um really appreciate your time okay nice to speak to you jess gay World crop report author michael lamond seven to one now, Western Australia's northwest could soon be home to its very own tequila-like spirit. A few years ago, one of Andrew Forrest's companies called Harvest Road kicked off some agave trials at Brickhouse Station, about 20 kilometres east of Carnarvon. Agave is native to Mexico, which is also home to, you guessed it, tequila. But it looks like the plant grows well in WA's Gascoigne, which has similar growing conditions to Mexico. So Harvest Road's Richard Cooney says they're now shoring up plans to create Australia's second agave spirit. Agave, obviously, is quite novel and it started off as a bit of a passion project but has fast becoming more of a commercial venture for us. We've got a, a beverages division within Harvest Road, which is a great synergy for us that produce spirits at the moment. So the long-term vision for us is to have the end-to-end supply chain on agave or the tequila spirit named TBC. Um, but we, yeah, we think there's a great opportunity for a local tequila-type spirit that's you know grown here at Brickhouse and, and processed by our beverages division, and hopefully, we'll, again, we'll market this great region and what's unique about it. Agave uh, takes a long time to grow. How long away are we looking at? Yeah, so the normal life cycle for agave is five to seven years. Along that journey, we're obviously going to try and do as much testing as we can to understand how the plants are going and whether there's any opportunity to get into market sooner would be great, but we also don't want to rush our entrance. 
So we kind of think from where we are today, it's probably four to five years away. Coming up in this calendar year, we plan to do, start doing trials on the plants to see what the sugar levels are and start to play around a bit with our beverages team to, to get an understanding of what the flavour's going to be like and, I guess, really validate that opportunity so we can start getting ready from a market perspective in terms of branding and all those great things. So what are the key research and development points from here to entering the market? Agave, historically, being grown in Mexico is a a very labour-intensive crop to harvest. That's the biggest challenge facing us at the moment is obviously labour costs in Australia compared to Mexico are vastly different. So for us in the next few years, what's critical is understanding what the mechanisation opportunities are or automation in terms of harvesting agave which we've started to talk to some universities around Western Australia and around the rest of the country as well to understand who might be out there to to help us sort of take on that challenge. And then secondly, it's around the post-harvest processing, so the cooking and juicing. And again, sustainability is so important to what we do in Harvest Road, so understanding where is the best place to do that in terms of transporting syrup versus transporting agave penis. All those sorts of challenges are what we need to work through. So it's really that intermediate step between harvesting and distilling. Harvest Roads Business Development General Manager Richard Cooney. So let's take a look at the actual farming of agave at Brickhouse Station. Saxon Boston is the state's the station's horticulture manager who says in the last two years the succulent has grown so well they're now looking at boosting production. So when we put the agave in, the agave seedlings that we got came over bare rooted for quarantine purposes, no soil from Queensland. And prior to that they were they were brought in by Oz Agave from Mexico is tissue culture and then growing out the nursery in Queensland. So we brought in 5,000 seedlings and planted them into one hectare. That spacing's a little bit tight. We're sort of falling back to 4,000 to the hectare now. But they're just over two years old and they're, um, and they're going well. The growth rates on those have shown that Carnarvon, the climate here, the soils, is, is really good for... Harvest Roads Horticulture Manager at Brickhouse Station, Saxon, Boston, speaking with Samantha Girling. And if you'd like to see the agave growing at Brickhouse Station in Western Australia's Gascoigne region, just search ABC Rural and Agave and you'll find Sam's online story. Uh, and, yeah, you'll also learn um, how to spell agave as well, which has been an issue here in the office today. Just a few minutes away from the news today, though, was the last Muse cattle sale for 2022 this morning. Terry Birkins there. Hi, Terry. Sounds like uh, some producers are out shopping for Chrissy and they've decided to give it a miss today. Hi, Jess. Yes, it was a lighter sale today with 546 less this week for the last sale of the year. There was 905 live weight and 194 calves for a total of 1,099. Local cattle were in short supply and the sale mainly consisted of lighter pastoral cattle with a few pens of heavy steers. The market was mostly equal with the exception of light weaner steers gaining around 10 cents and mature bulls up 15 cents per kilo and the usual field of buyers were in attendance today. Local villa steers realised 515 cents and local villa heifers sold up to 444 cents per kilo. Local yearling steers were selling from 250 cents to 440 cents depending on quality and weight, while yearling heifers sold up to 388 cents per kilo. Young pastoral steers ranged from 100 cents to 280 cents for the lighter types and up to 412 cents for the better quality steers, while pastoral heifers were selling from 100 cents to 298 cents for store condition and up to 400 cents per kilo for the better types. Grown steers selling from 220 cents to 362 cents while grown heifers sold from 250 cents to 274 cents per kilo. Lightweight cows were making from 80 cents to 200 cents, medium cows selling up to 218 cents, 
and heavy cows returned up to 246 cents per kilo. Light bulls ranged from 100 cents to 525 cents, depending on weight and condition. Shipping bulls returned 194 cents up to 420 cents, and mature heavy bulls sold to 272 cents per kilo. The first cattle sale for the new year is on the 9th of January. This has been Terry Birkin for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you so much for that update date from the Mewshake cattle sale today. Now, today we've been talking about agave. If you're wondering how it's spelled, it's A-G-A-V-E. Sounds very flash, doesn't it? Well, that's it from me for today. Thanks so much for your time. I'll catch you again tomorrow. News time, one o'clock.